All right, good morning, Foothills Church. How are we this morning? We good? Hey, my name is Greg Gibson. I'm one of the pastors here at FC, and it's an honor to be with you today. I want to welcome our Knoxville location and everyone watching online as well. So thankful that you chose to worship with us this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. The title of my sermon is this, How to Think Like Jesus. And I'm going to attempt uh, to answer this question this morning with you. How should we think like Jesus on the issues of our day that divide us? How should we think like Jesus on the issues of our day that divide us? In the 1980s, in the middle of the Ronald Reagan administration, the country was up in arms, if you can believe it, about a new government regulation that was just put in place. And so this new regulation was dividing Republicans and Democrats alike. It was uh, dividing neighbors. It was dividing family members. It was dividing followers of Jesus. And, and it was dividing churches as, as well. This new regulation introduced by the Reagan administration that was so divisive, if you can believe it, was this. Mandatory seat belt laws. In fact, it was this lady right here who introduced this. And you may remember, her name's Elizabeth Dole. She was uh, Ronald Reagan's transportation secretary at the time. This lady would eventually become a Republican senator. She would run for president. And she was the wife of the, the then Senate Majority Leader, um, Bob Dole, and future Republican presidential candidate. And one morning in the mid-1980s, she stood outside of her office building in Washington, D.C., and she had a sign that said, Stop. And as people were coming, and as people we're going, she was making sure that everyone had their seatbelts fastened. And some conservatives were up in arms about this, saying that Dole was acting like, and I quote, a paternalistic Democrat. And this new seatbelt law in the mid-1980s inspired protests and lawsuits and division around the country at the time saying that the government was infringing upon personal liberties by making its citizens have to wear seatbelts. And so, you know, it, it seems strange to me that no one seems to mind wearing seatbelts these days. Times have changed, yes, but human nature has not changed at all. We love outrage. We love to point our fingers at the other person. We love to pick sides and we love to think about the other person and the other view or, or whatever it might be because I think, and this is my opinion, it helps keep our focus off the mess that is our own lives. So, so consider this list of things in culture just recently that have been divisive maybe over the last half decade or so. And these are things that I've had conversations with many people about. You guys remember Target's gender-neutral bathrooms about six years ago, up in arms. Starbucks' gun policy 
about five years ago. Public school, everything. (laughs) Racial reconciliation issues. The Black Lives Matter movement. Pro-life issues. And, and, And I don't know about you, but maybe we could even take a moment as a church and celebrate the ending of Roe v. Wade over this last week. This is an historic event in our country. What about this? I'll continue the list. Critical race theory, mandating masks, vaccines. If you're a sports fan, the NFL and the national anthem, climate change issues, and and so much, so much more. What about these lists of personal freedoms? that cause division? How about maybe how you parent your children or your freedoms in drinking alcohol or using tobacco or the issue of legalizing marijuana or God forbid, listening to secular music or watching different forms of entertainment? What about how much money we spend on vehicles or our homes or vacations or or really anything at all when people are starving around the world and dying from preventable diseases? What about marrying someone from the same sex? Uh, I, I could go on and on, but how tense it is in here, I think you get the point, right? There's so much to cause division over in our culture today. There's so much to point fingers at this side or that side or the other side, even outside of what's in this book, even outside of of theological issues. And and here's here's my my next question. Why have have we as, as followers of Jesus caused so much division over these issues. So, so what, why are we in the, the place or in the seat or in the arena that we even find ourselves in? Churches are splitting, people are mad and divisive, dinner tables are empty and we're losing friendships and relationships over what we might call secondary issues or, or third tier issues. In every way possible, you and me as followers of Jesus potentially are losing influence. And I can't help but think that Jesus did not intend it to be this way. In fact, you may remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Several weeks ago, we went through chapter 1. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no what? Help me out. What's this word? Division here among you. But that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. He wrote 1 Corinthians to correct errors of behaviors and disunity, but not only that, he wrote it to urge believers to live in unity together. And we have a major problem in the church today and not just in the church that Paul is writing to then. We have a major problem today with how to be able to disagree with someone in a healthy way over secondary issues or third-tier issues or culture issues. 
And churches are dividing, families are dividing, Christians are refusing to sit side by side together like this and worship the same God together because of a culture issue. There's no space to disagree with someone anymore on these issues and still potentially remain in fellowship together. Disagreement over anything today has led to disunity, but hear me and lean in for just a moment. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be this way. We can live in healthy relationships and even when we disagree on things of culture, we can learn how to think in such a way that gives freedom to each of us to hold our own convictions on culture issues today. Maybe, just maybe, we can champion one another, learn from one another. It doesn't have to be just one-sided and divisive. And so, so my goal today is not to give you answers on how to think about specific issues. That's not my goal. My goal today is to help you think about how to think about stepping into issues of culture. So in other words, the, the whole goal today is to give you a framework of sorts for how to step into the different spaces or the different arenas in your life and then how to appropriately let the gospel lead forward first. And so my goal today is very much to help you think like Jesus taught us to think so that church, we can get back to living like Jesus teaches us to live. And so remember my question that we, we asked at the beginning, how should we think like Jesus on the issues of our day that divide us? How should we think like Jesus on the issues of our day that divide us? And we're going to attempt to answer this from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. If not, you can follow along on the screen here. We're going to read it in its fullness. Paul says this. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagine that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there, are, there, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many idols, Yet for us, there is one God from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food is really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off. If we do, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. 
Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So I want to give us three points today on how to think like Jesus on the issues that divide us. And the first point is this. We must begin with the primary message and the primary mission of Jesus. Let's look at verses one through four one more time. When Paul says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And Paul begins to use these, uh, these, these quotes in different places in the first four verses. You see it in verse four, food offered to idols. We know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. Many scholars would say that he is um, writing back to, responding to the letter that he got first from the Corinthian church. And after discussing in verse, or chapter six and chapter seven, the ethical question of marriage, Paul turns to the topic of the day should we, as followers of Jesus, eat food that has been sacrificed or offered to idols? So in other words, this is the ancient Near Eastern dinnertime discussion of the day. This is the, the ancient Near Eastern seatbelt or mask discussion. They're arguing over the issue, should Christians eat food sacrificed to idols? And should Christians eat food with non-Christians to begin with? And when Paul is using these, these quotations, he's just responding to what they had already said. And he's reminding the Corinthian church that they believe, I want you to see in this last highlight, that there is but one God. And he's saying this for a reason. He's saying no real idol existed for them and for me and for you who are followers of Jesus. And if there are no real gods or real objects that you are worshiping, which Paul's saying, there are not, because you even said it to me in your letter to me, there is no God but one, then yes, you are free to eat anything that you would like. So enjoy that Big Mac, right? Paul is saying that, that this is a matter of Christian liberty. So, so at this point, let's, let's do a little fun case study for a moment. Um, raise your hand if uh, you got the COVID-19 vaccine. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> but that's my point. And I think that's Paul's point here in the first four verses as well. Paul's point here, regardless of your position on an issue of culture, is a matter of Christian liberty. And he's saying this, regardless of food in this passage that's been sacrificed or dedicated to idols, we know that there is only one God. There's one God. And once you make it an objective truth that you have to live this way or live that way, he is saying then you are making that position an idol in your life. And I think, friends, Back to our point, this is our application. We must begin with the primary message and the primary mission of Jesus. Not these other cultural issues that begin to divide us and then cause us to point fingers at one another. So let's ask the question, well, what is the primary message of Jesus? 
And I would submit to you that we know in the room what the primary message of Jesus is. The primary message of Jesus is the gospel message. The gospel message is the message that Jesus lived a perfect life under the curse of the law. He never sinned. He was indeed perfect for us died the death that you and I both deserved and rose from the dead, defeating death. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't know about you, but the gospel has changed my life. It's changed my life. And not only did I receive salvation, because of Christ's work for me alone, I also received this new wonderful purpose for my life, this new meaning, this joy that's not anchored to circumstance. And that's just the, the primary message of Jesus. And so therefore we must ask again, what's the primary mission of Jesus? And you know this, if you've been a part of this community for any point, you know Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20, which is the great commission. Right before Jesus ascended back into heaven, he rose from the dead, gathered his disciples, and he gave them his mission. He said, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of what? All nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Friends, hear me on this and hear my heart as a pastor on this. But if this is what we are concerned with, the gospel going to the nations, if we're concerned with that, then we will have very little time for division amongst us. If this is our concern, we will have very little time in our schedules for divisive issues. I can't imagine, I don't know about you, but I can't imagine having enough time in my life to actively cause disunity and be divisive over a cultural issue when so many people are lost and so many people are dying and so many people are spending eternity separated from God if we believe the primary message of Jesus first is also as important as his primary mission to get this message of the gospel to the rest of the world. If cultural issues are dominating your life, then maybe you're doing Christianity wrong. Think about this with me. This word nation here, go and make disciples of all nations. It's this Greek word ethnos. And in this passage, Paul uses, it, Paul uses it as ethne, which means people group or peoples. And so Paul's saying, go and make disciples of all people groups or, or peoples of the earth. And he's not saying nations as we would define them today, as countries with borders. So when he's referring to people groups, he's saying, go and make disciples of, of all peoples. And according to the Joshua Project here, there's 17,427 people groups on the earth today. 417,000, or, or excuse me, 17,427 people groups on the earth today. And then of this number, there are still 7,414 unreached 
people groups. Quick math, it's 42.5% of the world that still doesn't have access to the gospel. Still doesn't have access to what has changed my life and has changed your life. This message of purpose, meaning, joy, salvation that transcends culture issues, 42.5% of the world still don't have. And I don't know about you, but that number, 42.5%, should dominate our time. It should dominate our schedules. It should dominate our resources if we believe the message of Jesus to be true. It should dominate our prayer life and so much more as followers of Jesus. And even if it doesn't, it should be way out in front of the culture issues of our day. We must begin and end with the primary message and the primary mission of Jesus. And when it comes to thinking like Jesus on the issues of our day, here's my second point. After we put the primary message and the primary mission in its proper place, we should run from legalism. We have to run from legalistic thinking. Look at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 here with me on the screen. Paul says, for although there may be uh, so-called gods in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, he reminds us, right? One God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And then he skips down here and he says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do eat. What I want you to see here is that Paul is reminding us that nothing that we do, nothing that we do, will get us closer to being accepted by God when we are already accepted by God because of the work of Jesus for us. It's what he's reminding us. We exist because God the Father created us to exist. And God loves us because of the finished work of Jesus alone. And in, in other words, Paul's saying, if we do eat food offered to idols, God still loves us and we are still accepted by him. And if we do not eat food offered to idols, God still loves us and we are still accepted by him. How amazing is that, church? And if we live in such a way where we make this an objective truth, just like the gospel message Paul is saying. Everybody has to, you have to live in such a way where you abstain from food offered to idols at all times. Then that's when we venture into this heavy and burdensome world of legalism. And this is why legalism is such a devastating thing for anyone who lives this way, any family or team or organization or church that operates in this weight it's devastating. I love John Piper's definition of legalism. He says, legalism is the conviction that law keeping is the ground of our acceptance with God. The ground of God being for us and not against us. And so I appreciate Piper's definition here. And the sad thing I think is that many, many, many of us actually live this way where we, we, we keep laws or we have to think in such a way or, 
our convictions are anchored in such a way where we're, we're thinking our acceptance with God is based on our behavior. Or the ground of God being for us and not against us is based on law keeping. And, and Paul is reminding us here that it's absolutely the opposite. And, and so for, for illustration purposes, would you rather swim, all right, here? Kitty pool, backyard, probably hot summer day, probably some dirt in there, grass, kid pee, like just it's probably gross, right? Or would you rather swim here off the coast of Hawaii where they probably like filmed like the 15 Jurassic Parks or something? Like th this, is, this is the point that I think Paul is making that legalism looks like this. We think, we think we have it all figured out. And then we expect everyone around us to think like we think and to act like we act. We think we have it figured out and we set up this really cool little kid pool in the backyard. And we're, and we're telling everyone, this is how you're supposed to live. It's, it's like swimming in the kiddie pool uh, when there is this out there. Legalism is swimming in such a way that you're never fully underwater, water coming up to your knees, fake taste of grace. It's small, marred, fake taste when you live in this world of legalism that everyone has to think like me, talk like me, think about all the things of culture like me. You only get a small fake taste of the true ocean that is the grace of God in and through the work of Christ Jesus for us alone. And the problem is, is that we have elevated 100 plus other messages, issues and platforms to be just as important as the primary message and the primary mission of Jesus. Also, when an issue of the day comes to light, we elevate that, whatever it is, right to that place. And here's what we do. You know the drill. We argue. We debate, we confuse, we evangelize for this thing. We cause division and disunity. We call meetings, we post on social media. We send emails and messages, all under the guise of gospel importance, but it's really what Paul is, is talking about here. And some of us don't even realize that we've been living in the backyard kiddie pool of legalism our entire life when there is an entire ocean out there of God's goodness, mercy, and grace for us. And, and all of this really reminds me of the problem that Jesus faced during his earthly ministry. In Matthew chapter 22, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come together and they try and stump Jesus. And he says, they say, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And what does Jesus say? This is probably a familiar passage to some of you. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is what's known as the great commandment or how Christians should live. So quick recap here. Pharisaical lawyer tries to stump Jesus. And I want you to know when he says, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He's saying, which of the 613 laws in the Old Testament is the most important? 
Can you categorize it, Jesus? Can you give weight to this one or to that one? Can you say that one of these is the most important or a group of these are the most important? And what does Jesus do? He turns the question upside down with his answer. What was his answer? Love God and love your neighbor. It is here that Jesus teaches us how to think and to live. The Jews divided 613 laws into different categories, into smaller commandments. But Jesus is saying there's no hierarchy here. There's only to love God and to love your neighbor. And the point is that we act like a Pharisee when we elevate one of the 613 laws to some place of primary importance. And we also do the same when we elevate an issue of culture in our day to this same place. In fact, Jesus is building on an earlier statement here in Matthew 5 when he says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he's showing us here that he is the one, he is the one alone who can fulfill the, the law. Law was given to Israel so that the Israel would know its sin and need for a savior. Paul called the law a tutor in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, pointing to someone who would come and keep the law on our behalf. Jesus tells the Pharisaical lawyer here, right, that these 613 laws are now summed up in loving God and loving our neighbor. He's not just giving lip service to the crowd. He is showing the lawyer that there is now a better way, a newer way, and a truer way in now which to live. And maybe you can see this with me. Instead of having 613 laws that you and I have to carry around, the weight of those laws, there is someone who carried the weight of those laws perfectly for us. Amen? Instead of living with 613 laws that you and I must obey to the fullest to have acceptance with God, there is someone in our place that obeyed all of them for us. What a joy to now live this way. No longer bound by that number. No longer bound by then this is how you should live according to the law but bound only by what Christ has done for us, fulfilling this and saying now it's all summed up, loving God, loving your neighbor. What a joy to live this way. We give our opinion to which of these metaphorical 613 culture war items we want to see in place of primary importance And I think we act like the Pharisaical lawyer here and elevate whatever issue is the issue of our day to the primary message and the primary mission of Jesus. Is it wrong to speak to the culture issues of our day? Absolutely not. Should we live with conviction? Yes. Speak away, have an opinion, but learn how the gospel applies to each one of these things. My argument is that we can never elevate them to a place of gospel importance first. They should always exist behind the primary message and the primary mission. And okay, at this point, I'm gonna put on my teacher hat. You're like, what were you just doing? (laughs) I'm gonna try and teach you something New, maybe. Maybe it's new for some of you. Maybe it's a reminder for some of you. But this is what I'm going to call the legalistic and pharisaical framework. And I'm going to explain 
what this, what each category here means. But we have first tier issues that are pointing to the center of the bullseye, second tier issues that are the second ring, and the third tier issues that are the third ring of the bullseye. And when we have our primary message and our primary mission, then we, I think we can step into this discussion. First tier issues, let me, let me define these issues quickly. First tier issues are what we call essential doctrines of our faith. Close-handed issues. These are areas where we will divide in fellowship over. These are, these are issues that I think you must actually believe, uh, maybe even to go to heaven. If you must contend for the faith, defend for the faith, cause division within the faith, do so here. Many martyrs in church history have given their lives to defend for first-tier issues, which are essential close-handed issues or doctrines within the Christian faith. Examples of these first-tier issues or essential doctrines are the Trinity, God as creator, the authority of the scriptures, the full deity and humanity of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the sinfulness of man, salvation by faith alone, and, and many others. Second-tier issues here, or what we're going to call non-essentials, are a bit different. These are issues that you can agree to disagree with someone over. In other words, if, if there are 500 of us in the room today, we can all have different opinions or different angles on a theological position or a theological teaching. The goal, however, is not to cause disunity or division, but to give definition. And these would be open-handed issues of Christian theology and doctrine, such as the doctrine of the church, women in ministry, missions methods and models, spiritual gifts, the end times, and other positions like that. Third tier issues, then, as I define them, are not issues of doctrine inside the church. Those have been defined. But these are issues of praxis outside the church or how we engage, think, react, and practice within the arena of culture. So in my view, these are issues, again, outside of the church that Christians, yes, should engage in convictionally, but we should do, do so through the lens of the great commandment, love God, love neighbor, and the great commission, making disciples of all nations is primacy. These are tertiary issues for a reason. Here, here's what I mean. We will never win over our brother or sister by making these third tier issues of culture primary issues. Third tier issues, examples might look something like this. Issues of, of politics in the public square. Gun control issues, voting Democrat or Republican, climate change issues, critical race theory, government regulations like masks and seatbelts, vaccines, parenting issues, public school everything, the homeschool movement, how to discipline your children, personal freedoms like alcohol, tobacco use, food offered to idols, which is the purpose of our text in 1 Corinthians 8, and many, 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 many more issues of our day. Here's what the legalistic and pharisaical framework does. We take a third tier issue of culture and we put them where first tier essentials belong and then we draw a concrete box around them. We do so with second tier issues as well and we can't 
we can't define them or we can't put them in the proper category that they're supposed to be. And they're all just as important as the historical resurrection of Jesus or God as Trinity or the authority of scriptures. And you can do this with anything. How to discipline your children, how to budget your money, how to vote, wearing masks. We claim an opinion. We're loud about an opinion. We think our opinion is primary. We think our opinion is gospel. And we think everyone else should also hold to our opinion on third tier issues. And we put them in the center of the bullseye and draw this concrete, indestructible box around them. And this is when we venture into the wary and burdensome world of legalism. I think we are never more like the pharisaical lawyer that Jesus is speaking to as when we draw concrete boxes around third tier issues as if they're just as important as the gospel message. My plea today is for us to not make third tier issues just as important as a first tier issue of our faith. My plea is to to not cause division at the church that you love over third tier issues. My plea, even if we could go a step further, is to fill your dinner tables with people who might even disagree with you over third tier issues. If we focus on where to fight, we must fight in the center of the bullseye. Fight for the essential doctrines of our faith. Defend those with our life. But, Walk into third tier issues here with humility, open handedness, gentleness, a tender heart. Be willing to learn in this arena from the experiences of others, willing to ask questions, willing to dialogue and be okay if someone in your church or your small group or family around your dinner table holds to a different opinion than you on the third tier issue. Let me say it this way. First tier issues guide us. They, they, they show us where we're going. Second tier issues, the open-handed begin to define us. They define what we might call our, our denomination or our tribe or something like that. And then third tier issues challenge us how to think like Jesus, which brings us to our final application point this morning, which is this. We must now live in the freedom of our Christian conscience while allowing others to also live freely. That's the whole purpose of 1 Corinthians chapter eight. Running from legalism, putting the importance of the message of the gospel and the mission of Jesus as primary, and then stepping into these spaces with a clear conscience while allowing others to do the same. Again, this is an important passage for our understanding of what Paul is trying to show the Corinthian church. He says in verse nine, Right, he says this. He says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And then in verse 13, he says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And even though Paul has the right to eat meat, see this with me here. Even though he has the right, even though he has the liberty to eat meat, even though he has the knowledge that he talked about and maturity to eat meat. He's not venturing into the weary and burdensome world of legalism with his opinion that everyone should also live like he should live on this open-handed issue. 
And he has a free and clear conscience on eating meat offered to idols because he said there's only one God. There's really no idols to begin with. But then he says this in verse 13, if food makes my brother stumble, it's not for me, man. It's not for me. That right there is thinking about third tier issues or cultural issues through the lens of the great commandment and the great commission. And so with Paul's words in mind, let's make it very simple, very simple. This is my theological framework that I've been working out and thinking about for some time. And now hopefully it's your theological framework as well. The point is let's put the issues where they belong. Let's put them in their proper category. Let's keep the issues right where they're supposed to be. First tier issues in the center, primary importance. Second tier issues in a friendly way, in small groups, with church, with friends, where they belong. But brothers and sisters, listen. With third tier issues that we would live in such a way that we are willing to take a back seat in order to win our brother or to win over our sister or to win over a family member or to win over a friend or to win over a neighbor. Hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you should push pause or move aside your conviction as a follower of Jesus on any issue. But it's how you step into these spaces with the categories that you now have that define your behavior, define your language, and really define your heart's posture, that the gospel's most important, that the making of disciples to all nations is most important. That when we understand that these are in their proper place, we can live with freedom and conviction. And when one issue of culture rises one day and another issue of culture rises another day, we don't have to, to think really hard about how to define this. Is it an essential? Is it a non-essential? Is it an issue of culture? We put it in its proper place. We act like Jesus because we have been taught now to think like Jesus. And so remember my original question, how should we think like Jesus on issues? of our day that divide us then? Maybe we can answer it this way now. Living in such a way that we make certain all of our rights, all of our positions and all of our practices, all the things that we have freedom to do, the, the freedom to think, the convictions of which we live, are done so with a clear conscience. First of all, not for God's approval because we have already been stamped, forgiven and redeemed and justified and approved because of the finished work of Jesus alone. There's nothing that we can do, think, say, act, behave, whatever that will earn more of God's approval in our life. It's because of what Christ has done. So when we step into these other spaces, with the knowledge that we have and that we have been given, we do so knowing that our positions and our practices are, are, and our rights are done so with a clear conscience, not for God's approval. And, and this is where maybe some of us need to live this morning, with an open-handed posture. 
as to not cause division with our freedoms. I think this is Christian maturity lived out in real time right now. I think this is 1 Corinthians 8 in real life. And I think this is what it means that Paul's reminding us to think like Jesus taught us to think so we can begin living like Jesus desires us to live. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning with open hands, with gentleness, with a desire to learn, also with a convictional spirit, a convictional understanding of what we know as believers and we know as followers of you, we should defend even with our life if we have to. But I pray that you would give us wisdom to walk in such a way where all of our knowledge and our rights and our practices and our freedoms lead us to winning our brothers and sisters and neighbors and family members, whoever for you and not pushing them away. Father, I, I pray that you would make us convictional. God, but I pray that you would also make us winsome. I pray for everyone here that we would become convictional fishers of men, that we would take the mission of Jesus seriously to go and make disciples of all nations. God, thank you for our time this morning. Speak to our hearts. We're thankful for the freedom that we have to even gather in this place. And we pray all this in Jesus' name alone. Amen. Thank you so much for watching this video. We'd love for you to like the video and leave a comment. And we also encourage you to subscribe and click the bell so you never miss a post from Foothills Church. To learn more about FC, just head to our website by going to foothillschurch.com or by clicking the link in the description below.